So tonight I have a confession to make. And the confession is that I lied last week. <laughs> I said I was going to give a talk on truthfulness. <laughs> and I didn't get it together. So I don't have a talk on truthfulness. I was teaching a retreat all week and I thought I'd have, you know, retreat. It always sounds like, oh, you're going to have time and space and it was, it was a very busy retreat. So um, I have another talk that I've been wanting to give, but I'm not going to promise to give the truthfulness talk next week because I have another retreat to teach and I hear it's full, so it may be very busy also. But it's coming. There is a talk on truthfulness coming. Um, and it may be next week. I don't know, I, but I'm not promising anymore. Um, what I'd like to talk about tonight, I'd actually like to talk about the meditative practice. Um, an important part of the meditative practice um, and how we can think about it, how we might work with uh, a certain part of practice, hopefully give you some um, objectivity about a part of the meditative practice and also see how the same uh, area of practice that we look at in the meditative process also applies to our daily life. And um, let me start with this. This was from the San Francisco Chronicle about a long time, 11 years ago now. Wow. It says, uh, two Chinese women set a world record Monday living for 12 days in a room with 888 snakes. How's that sound for a meditative practice? The two young women left behind the 666 cobras and 222 other snakes with whom they had shared a room for 12 days. They said the snakes often crawled across our heads or touched our faces and the bottoms of our feet with their tongues. Some even sneaked under their quilts at night and refused to leave. The biggest snakes were two boa constrictors weighing 33 and 44 pounds, which often dozed under their pillows. Just, just. Each morning, the women washed the snakes, cleaned up their waist, and removed the bodies of the dead snakes. So it's, I, I, that, somehow that story has stayed with me these 11 years. <laughs> And partly because uh, it's, it is, they did a certain kind of practice. And they get, did a certain kind of practice of staying with something, staying right in the middle of something that was very difficult and very uncomfortable and generally you would never want to be in that situation. And so there's a similar situation that we put ourselves in when we meditate. And that's being with our own snakes, right? The inner snakes, the inner reptiles, the inner serpents. And I'd like to speak to what's traditionally called the five hindrances. The five hindrances of meditation. And 
the hindrances briefly are um, desire, aversion, restlessness or agitation, um, sloth and torpor, dullness, and what's known as skeptical doubt. And really they're broad categories. And ultimately we could talk about a hindrance as almost anything that we don't want to be experiencing or anything that in some sense takes us away from being with what we are experiencing. And so they hinder us from being present with things as they are. And one of the basic goals of the meditative practice is to actually learn how to be with ourselves, how to be with the, the reptilian part of ourselves as well as with the Buddha part of ourselves. And for many of us, um, actually for all of us, there is very little training in how to actually be with our experience. How to be with the experience of um, wanting things to be different, the experience of not liking things, the experience of being agitated or restless or uncomfortable or the, what, what some people sometimes describe as having ants in their pants, um, or, or the experience of being dull and foggy and dreamy and tired and sleepy and um, uh, unenergetic, a loss of a certain kind of aliveness or power. And then, um, and then the experience of doubt, of skeptical doubt, of a kind of wavering, of not knowing what's true, what's real, which way to go, this or that, what's right, how to do it, what should I do, no ground in some sense. And Traditionally, the, the hindrances um, are also talking, talking about hindering our capacity to deepen in the meditative process. They, they keep the mind and heart from settling into itself in a way that starts to bring uh, a collectedness and a, a um, a composure and a concentratedness and a certain power that's needed for beginning to penetrate reality. To, that's needed to begin to see things as they are, not just on the surface level, but at its depth. And mindfulness, which the word is used very conventionally these days, and a, you know, a little bit in a disservice um, to the way it was originally used, but you'll hear people saying, oh, you know, I went to the store and I forgot to buy the granola. I wasn't being mindful. And that's not exactly what was originally meant by mindfulness or uh, insight meditation, um, or the word sati originally. But originally talked about penit, what the word meant or means to penetrate reality, insight into the nature of reality, into the nature of who and what we are. 
And so the hindrances come as part, as a very important to understand this because the language is a little archaic. Even the word hindrance is actually a little archaic. Um, hindering is better. Maybe difficulty is better. Um, I, I haven't found language that I feel like is really speaks to what it's like to work with these parts of our experience, which is basically all they are. They're just parts of our experience and they're normal parts of our experience. They're parts that we will deal with on the meditation cushion and off the meditation cushion. And in that way, when, when we begin to see them as normal, then we can take any kind of pejorative judgment off the fact that they may be occurring, that we may be having desire or aversion or wanting or restless or doubting or whatever kind of cranky state of mind you might find yourself in. We don't have to judge it then. And as we learn to work with the difficult energies that these are describing, and some arch, these are archetypal um, uh, difficult energies, as we begin to work with them, the paradox is that they become the building blocks for the meditation practice itself. That nobody learns how to really meditate unless they learn how to work with these energies. It's just not, doesn't happen. And maybe there's a rare being who, who these don't come to, but even the Buddha, it's often you read it in the text, that these were the energies that came to the Buddha. They're sometimes described as the armies of Mara. In, in Buddhist cosmology, Mara is the, is the archetypal opposite of the Buddha. And so Mara comes and challenges the Buddha. Mara sometimes, the word actually, um, devil is, and death. Maranasati is the mindfulness of death. So Mara means death or devil or the, the tempter. And, 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 and Mara has these armies, these energies, and these are the energies of Mara. And Mara comes to the Buddha. So it's a good bet. If Mara comes to the Buddha, Mara's going to come to you, right? You know, it's a good, good bet. The question for us and the, and the practice for us is how do we work with Mara? How do we work with these energies? And how do we begin to see the art of working with these energies? Because there's a certain kind of art when we actually begin to learn the inner art of working with desire, with our um, grasping for things and wanting things and always looking outside of ourselves for something to make us happy or content or satisfied. It, it, becomes, it becomes a beautiful practice. It's just, in some sense, the meditation is very much of an art like the, the art of music or the art of learning an instrument. You know, when you first play scales, the first time you start to play them, they sound horrible. But for somebody who's really begun to master the art of playing, 
then even a scale becomes beautiful. And so even working with desire at some point becomes, it's not, the desire is not a bad thing, it's natural. Working with our restlessness, there's an art to it. There's a way to start to find our presence in the middle of an experience that normally would have, a, have us in its thrall, would have us at its mercy, would have us um, believing it and believing its power over us. And then all of a sudden we start to find our place, our seat, our cushion, our um, presence, um, our capacity to be with experience as it is. And then all of a sudden there's a new relationship to the experience itself. That, that the experience, we're not in the thrall of the experience. Now this experience is part of our mindfulness practice. And it has a transformative possibility when we bring it into the field of mindfulness. And in that way, in that way, when we, we begin to learn the art, we begin to learn the power of mindfulness. We begin to realize that there is a power of presence, of being present in a way um, that allows any experience to be here. And that's a very beautiful power because that means that whatever life brings us, we, know, we begin to know, we begin to have the confidence to see that it's workable, whatever life brings us. And this was Chungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher, used to call this the lion's roar. And he's echoing the Buddha. The Buddha's awakening is called the lion's roar. And, and when Chungpa talked about the lion's roar in this way, he said, he said the lion's roar is to see that any, any state of being is workable. Any state of heart is workable. Any state of mind is workable. And that it brings a tremendous courage, courage meaning a lion-heartedness to our life. That we have this capacity. And mindfulness is a beautiful teaching of how to allow this capacity to begin to recognize the capacity, to begin to utilize the capacity, and to be able to live a life with that kind of courage. So, let me, let me be a little more specific now, talking about the hindrances. Um, the first hindrance being desire. Everybody know what desire is? It's, it, it, we can sum it up in two words. I want. Anybody ever heard those two words? <laughs> I want. And in some way, in, in really, um, it's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm free associating here a little bit. There's a beautiful teaching in the Jewish tradition from the Baal Shem Tov, from a mystical Jewish teacher 
and he was talking about the desire for somebody um, sexually. And he said, when that desire comes up, don't push it away. But look at it. What is it that, that you desire? What is it that you really desire? And where does the source of that desire come from? And if it's this beauty that you love and desire, what's the source of that beauty? Where does that beauty come from? Keep looking for the source. And really what he, he's pointing at from the theistic view is God. God is the source of everything. And to begin to see the source of our heart's desire is one way to start to work with the hindrance of desire. Is not, And this is, this is a, a key principle in mindfulness practice. So I desire this thermos. You know, this is a low-key desire here. <laughs> but it's actually, you know, I'm pretty attached to my thermos anyways. Some of you may have noticed. But, so, but I desire the thermos. So, so to see the desire and then to begin to see the source of the desire, the wanting. And the source is not in the thermos, right? The source is here in the heart. And now we can work with desire. Now desire becomes workable because we begin to see that the desire is the object is only part of the desire. And whatever it is you want, I want riches, fame, fortune, sex, beauty, I don't know, what is that about it? Does that cover it? <laughs> Computer, cars, houses, iPod, iPod <laughs> you know, that there's a desire there. Where's the source of the desire? In mindfulness, we begin to turn the attention back towards the source. And now we have something very interesting to work with, which most people are never trained to look at. Mostly our training, especially if you, if you live in this culture at this time, the training is to keep looking at where's the next thing? What's the next thing that, that the advertising industry is going to tell us is going to make us happy? I mean, the most brilliant people work in advertising, right? Some people watch the Super Bowl just to watch the ads because they're so good. And they so speak to us because they're speaking to the source of our desire. And they're manipulating it to think that the answer to the, what we're really seeking is out there. And the Buddhist, Buddha and the Buddhist teaching actually turns that around and says the source of the source, not only the source of your desire, and the, and it, but the fulfillment of our desire is right here. And so, just kind of be gracious with the siren for a moment. Um, so to start seeing the energy of desire, the passion of desire, the heartfulness of desire,
and start to see what it's like to sit in the middle of that as a, as a living experience rather than something that we're at the mercy of, rather than something that we're in the thrall of, rather than something that we have to act on. And when we can learn, sit in the fire of desire and in the heat of desire, then we can begin to learn about desire. Then we not only can we learn that maybe we don't have to act on desire and that we can be free from desire or unattached to desire, but we can also learn sometimes we do want to act on the desire, but we have a place of freedom from which to act. That desire is not bad. And some desires and are actually considered really wholesome in Buddhism. So we're talking about a specific kind of desire when we talk about desire as a hindrance. And the desire we're talking about is the desire that has at its core the belief that the satisfaction of that desire will make us happy and that it's outside of us. Where the desire... should. I'm going to say that again. Where the satisfaction created by that desire is from outside of us and that's what's going to make us happy. Have you, have you seen this? Right? I mean, can I, should I... Here's a, my, one of my favorite examples when my daughter was... I don't know, 12 or 13. She, was on, she, liked, um, she liked old clothes. And I had learned, she had trained me, that if I wanted to hang out with her at that age, basically I had to do what she wanted. Because she wasn't so interested in doing what I was interested in. So I would go shopping with her at thrift stores and, you know, I can't even remember the name of those stores, but... Um, pardon? But Yeah, no, I know that one. But there was Buffalo Exchange or things like that. So she also had one, which Lance knows because he knows my stories really well. It had that we went to a, a thrift store where they sold clothes by the pound, and she would pile it up and they would weigh it, and it was cheap. It was you know as, as a dad, it was okay. It wasn't like you know she was into like upscale clothes particularly. So she would buy all these clothes and we'd go home and she would try them on and show me, right? She'd put on a shirt or a jacket and, and she was just thrilled. She loved, my daughter really loved to shop at that age. And um, she'd try these on and it'd go about a half an hour and she'd, you know, try on everything, these little sport jackets or, I don't know, you know, stuff. And then, uh, and then, after about another half an hour, she'd come back, she'd say, can we go shopping again? That's the wanting that we, we see is actually not so helpful. On the meditation cushion, what it looks like is wanting our experience to be different. Wanting our experience to be different. Oh, I want to have this experience then my meditation would be okay. I want to have that experience, then my meditation would be okay. And so, and what that does, the reason why it hinders us is it actually takes us away from what's happening now. So maybe, and, and the desires can be mixed. There can be a kind of mixed motivation. 
you know, on one hand, I want to get away from what I'm feeling because I feel rotten today. On the other hand, there's a wanting to, to be concentrated or peaceful, let's say. And that's, that's, it's skillful to want that. It's not a bad thing to want that. What's paradoxical is if we can learn to stay with feeling rotten, the peace is found there. And I don't know how to describe this other than it's a little bit magical in mindfulness practice. That when we learn to be with where, right where we are, something relaxes in our heart and in our mind and then there's some peace. Even though it's not the way we expected to get it. We expect it just by getting what we think is the goodie. Like I want peace or I want a donut or I want a burger or I want clothes or I want, I want. But if we turn and settle into where we are with the wanting, feeling the wanting and then whatever it is we're in some way, and this is always paradoxically true, there's something we're not wanting, then we find ourselves here and then what we seek, we find. Because it's nowhere else. And this, I could say this at the end of this talk, at the beginning of this talk, in the middle, you are what you seek. You are what you seek. The wise ones say this in every tradition. You are what you seek. And that's why we look right here for what we seek, for what we want, and not outside of ourselves. So the wanting, the desire, the object, thinking that it's somewhere else, something else than what's actually here. We don't yet know the... the the paradoxical um, map of meditative practice that if we, act, if we move into what's here, what we seek will come. If we move into desire, we will find peace ultimately or contentment. So there's a transformative, paradoxical, transformative possibility right in what's, quote, hindering us itself. And I'm going I'm to tie this, try to tie this in a little bit with the deepening of meditation, right? I said the hindrances, when they are in abeyance, allow for the meditative process to deepen. So what arises as desire begins to fade is a little bit of uh, um, capacity to focus more clearly on the moment. To That as this gathering ourselves allows us to be more present with what's actually here. It's the beginning of the movement towards concentration and collectedness and composure. And of course that concentration, collectedness, composure sets the stage for insight to arise. And insight is not something we do. It arises naturally, spontaneously in the meditative process. So there's desire. A poem from Ryokan. How beautifully he puts it. He says, without desire, 
everything is sufficient. Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone, I hike with the deer. Cheerfully, I sing with the village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fills my heart. He's exactly where he is because he's without desire for anything else. When he's with the children, total enjoyment. If you, if you learn about Ryokan and read his poetry and story, he loved to play with children. If he's with the rice farmer and it's dinner, he drinks sake with them and hangs out, has a good time. If he's alone, he's with the pine tree, with the stream, walking in the woods. If he's sad, which he talks about a lot, he's sad. He's exactly where he is. There's no desire to be somewhere else. And if you're interested in, in Ryokan, the beautiful poetry book is called One Robe and One Bo One Robe, One Bowl. One Robe, One Bowl. So there's desire, and then the flip side of desire, of course, is aversion. And aversion is great. Aversion is great. <laughs> Take it from an aversive. Actually, there's, there's a personality typology in Buddhism and the three main types are greed type, aversive type, and a confused type. And I'm a aversive. I fall on the aversive. So I know a lot about aversion. Um, I can have a very aversive mind. Um, and it can be a lot of suffering if I believe it. It can be a lot of suffering if you believe your aversion. It's, aversion is always a rejecting of reality. No. Uh, here's a, okay, my daughter, God bless her. Um, I've said this before, but my daughter, we learned enough about my aversive mind and my no that probably by the time she was 10, she'd learned how to ask me, it was probably a little later, but she'd learned, she'd ask me for things like this. She'd say, Dad, I, I want to go sleep over so-and-so's house tonight. And after you say no, would you think about it? <laughs> and it was a very skillful way that we worked out for me to have my aversive mind, but not to believe it. And her not to believe it either. And truth be told, that, and especially as she got older and she would ask for things that were a little more than oh, sleeping over at somebody's house or whatever it was that I might feel nervous about as a father or react to, still, I would say 90% 90, 90 of what she would ask, I would end up saying yes after I would have my initial reaction of my mind would like no, because that's the way my mind worked. But what's beautiful about meditation practice is we get to study ourselves. We get to study the human experience, which is both universal and specific. So, I mean, it's universal. Everybody has a version. 
not everybody has as much aversion as me. I mean, you know, maybe a third of the people do. But a third, but if you're a greed type, if you want, if you have desire, then then that would be, you know, oh, of course, yeah, that'd be great. Oh, you want to sleep over there? Can I come too? You know, it's like that. <laughs> you know, and if it's a confused type, it's like, where do you want to go? What? I'm not sure. Well, who who is that again? Oh, did I meet them? You know, it's more... <laughs> so they're different types of people. So, so the... Um, aversive type and you can see it it's it's actually it is it's a it's a kind of a rejecting of reality a rejecting of life really and it's um and and it's important to see so that we can start to see it's not the truth of who we are or the truth of life of the truth of reality that when we begin to find our ground in mindfulness and then we can see the habitual patterns of our minds or our hearts or our reactivity and we're not bound by them, then it's just, then it's just a habit. And then we can see, oh, there's some other way to relate to life. And that life, and, then, and, and from that other place, you can still say no, but it's not as a pattern, it's not as a habit, it's not as a knee-jerk reaction. There's some freedom there to really consider whatever it is life is bringing us, whatever kind of circumstances life brings us. Do we want to say yes or no? What is, what, what is our response when we're present and our intelligence is available, our creativity is available, our heartfulness is available, our soulfulness is available to us? Then how do we want to react? How do, you know, because to react out of our habitual patterns, uh, conditioning, is dukkha. It's suffering. It's human suffering. And we don't need to be bound by those habits and patterns. So as we pay attention to the mind in the sitting practice, we will find aversion. Often the first thing Tell me, let me, let me try it this way. Tell me something you didn't like about the meditation tonight. Anybody? Well, the noise of the chairs. The noise of the chairs, right? Okay, what else? Pain. Pain. Very common. So these two, let, let me just start there a sec. I mean, these are beautiful examples. Sounds, right? It should be quiet. Medita- meditating. You know, it's like, wait, how come, they're, how come they're in the room where you can hear the traffic? You know, let alone the chairs, or let alone the person next to you swallowing. You know? Then you can start to feel your aversion, right? And I mean, and this is just sound, right? And so it's, it's beautiful, because t- the way to practice with it is to notice, first of all, that we're hearing. Like that's the immediate phenomena. That's the direct experience. There's hearing. And there's hearing, and then there's a reaction to the hearing, which is aversion. And we don't want to deny the aversion. We're not trying to become nice people. That's not what's... We're trying to become free people. And there's a real difference in that. 
nice, you know, nice is okay, not bad. It's nice to be nice, my father used to say. <laughs> but but, but it, it's better to be free than nice. And what I mean by that is we may not feel nice inside. And if we try to pretend we're nice, then we can't be free. Now, I'm not suggesting we act on our aversion. That wouldn't be nice. <laughs> but to suppress it would not allow us to be free. So we want to be mindful of our aversion. And again, this is the razor's edge with all of practice. Not to suppress, not to act out, but to stay present within that fire in order so that the confusion and the unclarity and the hindering burns away and then we have a choice on how we want to act. So, when I'm sitting, one of the most common things that comes, in addition to noise, and if you notice, I always take the clock and put it under, under my thing, under the, the mat when I'm sitting, because I have a lot of aversion to the clock. Tick, tick, tick. You can have aversion to anything, really. Um, one of the things that happens when we sit down to study what it is to be a human being is we start to learn about our bodies. We start to learn about how we hold or we're tense or there's chronic pain or an injury or some un something that's uncomfortable in our physical form. And, and the most normal reaction to that is aversion. Animals, of which we are, partly, animals do not like to be uncomfortable physically. One, okay, here's a great way to study aversion. Now, right now, I want you to not move. Exactly how you are, don't move. Just stay absolutely still. And we're going to sit like this for about 15 minutes. You moved right there. Now, for even, even two minutes. Do you notice that it's not comfortable to stay still? Okay, you can move a little. But do, do you see that? There's one meditation teacher, that's the first thing she teaches in Thailand. Um, I, I'm trying to remember her name. Ajahn Neb. The first thing, she comes in, different style of teaching. You come in, you sit down, you have tea with her, and she's, and you, you know, you've come to hear the Dharma. She says, don't move. And has you sit there a while to show you what suffering is that there's dukkha and there's a reaction to it. There's a certain suffering, there's a certain difficulty with having a body, which is we're always moving to make ourselves comfortable. And that moving points to something that's implicit, is we're aversive to being uncomfortable. Now, the paradox is as we sit in this, let's say, a formal meditation posture or in a chair, however it is, that actually we're going to sit with being uncomfortable and not move 
and learn how to find our freedom in that. And one of the keys to finding the freedom with the uncomfortableness of the body is to include our aversion. If we just act on our aversion, we'll move all the time, the mind will never settle. That's why it hinders us. Because we're believing the aversion, we're acting on it, it hinders us from being still. And the stillness is a support for the mind becoming still. So, So when my body hurts, when I'm sitting, I'm noticing the pain, I'm being mindful of the pain or the uncomfortableness, but I'm equally including my aversion. And for those of you who know the noting practice, it's where we name what's happening silently to ourselves in order to stay present with it. So if there's pain in the knee, I'm noting it. Oh, ache, ache, pain, pain, burning, burning, twisting, you know, whatever it is. But I'm also noting something else. I'm noting my, oh, aversion, aversion, ow, ow, don't like it, shit, shit, don't want it to stay. And I'm, I can be very primitive in the noting because you want to express the energy of the aversion. That's what we want. We want to come in. These aren't just abstract ideas. These are energetic, somatic, kinesthetic realities for us that we want to bring. We want to learn how to settle our heart and mind right in the middle of. Because for a paradoxical reason, I can't actually explain. That's where freedom is. That we, we can find ourselves here in the midst of human experience. And of course, the archetypal image of what I can't explain is the Buddha who sat down under the Bodhi tree and said, I'm going to sit here until I'm awakened. And then the armies of Mara attacked him. All these hindrances came and others. And he sat in the middle of that and found his freedom there. And that's the archetype for what I'm describing in terms of being mindful with the hindrances. Okay, we've gotten through two pretty much. Let's see where we can go. Um, three and four are also complementary. Restlessness and, and sleepiness or agitation and dullness. And they're, and they're more clearly often physical agitation, physical restlessness, although at times the mind can really be restless too. And, and I guess it's true for both. There's a, there's a physical dullness and sleepiness and sloth and torpor, but also the mind itself, the attention itself can be dull and drowsy and foggy and like thick soup or something, pea soup. Um, the practice is the same. What's it like to sit with this? Especially with restlessness. And partly restlessness in the sitting meditation comes um, because we're not used to being still. Our minds are not used to being still. And there's a reaction to it. And the reaction is a little bit, get me out of here. 
And it can be quite strong physically at times. Again, like some people ants in their pants, some people feel like they're going to explode if they don't move. Nobody has ever exploded yet. <laughs> I imagine it could happen, right? I've heard of some kind of, in, you know, you know, instantaneous combustion that can happen to people, but but so far I haven't seen anybody explode. But I've seen people really feel like they they could, and so I mean we're we're giggling a little, but I'm respectful of how powerful agitation and restlessness is in the heart and the mind and the body. And the traditional way to practice is to really sit right in the middle of it. Die to the restlessness. Die to the restlessness. Because at some point it will leave. It will change. Because it's the nature of it. And when we begin to again find our ground in that, then we begin to find the power of meditative practice. That we don't have to get pushed around by these states of heart and mind. Now, again, there are different ways to work with the restlessness. Note it, name it, be with it. Sometimes, and especially, it, you won't have it so much in daily practice. You'll, it can come, you'll have it some, but you can have it really strong on a retreat, on a longer retreat. And so partly one of the ways we encourage people to work with it, because it can happen over a, a period of time, a half a day, a day, two days, three days of intense restlessness. And so you not only sit with it, but you walk with it. Sit and walk, sit and walk, and use the walking as a way to help bring some balance. Breathing with any of the hindrances as a way to bring balance is very helpful. Breathe with the desire, breathe with the aversion. Breathe with the restlessness. See what it's like to keep breathing into it. Um, the sleepiness or slothfulness, there's a few ways to practice with it. And again, these are natural energies. The, the, and they, and one, one more piece that I think is important to understand is not only do they come when we're learning the practice, or the beginning of a retreat. But whenever you go on retreat, at some point they come. I mean, every retreat I've gone on, the hindrances come. They're part of the retreat. And they're usually part of the settle, dropping in to a deeper state of consciousness. And so they're just part of the terrain. You know, if you want to go to Marin, basically you have to go over the bridge. It's, it's just part of the terrain. I mean, you could swim or you could take a boat, you know, it's true. But, you know, generally, you're going to go over the bridge. If you're going to deepen in meditation, you're going to work with the hindrances. You're going to go through them. There's no free ride in life, really. You know, I, I travel a good bit and I notice sometimes it's amazing in, in 10 hours, I'm in London, right? I fly to Europe to go teach, I'm in London. And it's like easy, right? You know, a hundred, hundred, where are we? Yeah, a hundred years ago, you know, you'd have to leave, take a boat. It would take a number of days. You know, here are ten hours in London. But it's still, the jet lag is horrible, right? There's always something. If you're going somewhere, if you're going somewhere good, it's never just easy. There's something, there's some way we have to work for it.
And I don't mean that in a puritanical sense. It just seems to be true. And it's true in the meditative practice. It will take your sincerity, your, your engagement, your um, commitment, and your steadfastness. And then it will bring you rewards. It may not bring you the rewards you think you're going to get. I want to warn you. But it will bring you rewards greater than any reward you can imagine, actually. Greater than any reward we can imagine. Because what it brings is something that's not a fantasy and not an idea and not an imagining, but reality. So the sleepiness... And I'm talking about literally, when you're falling asleep on the cushion, the best way to work with it is simply stand up. It's really hard to fall asleep standing up. I've only done it once. And by the time I was this far to the ground, I woke up from the adrenaline of falling. Um, The other way to work with it is actually go to sleep sometimes and let it happen, and then start meditating as soon as you wake up. But don't berate yourself. None of the hindrances are worth pejorative judgment. That's not, that's not why we articulate them and clarify them. We clarify them in order to work with them, but not to judge ourselves. Oh, I'm a horrible meditator. I'm sleepy now. If you're sleepy, that's what you have to work with. That's what reality is bringing you to work with as part of your meditation now. When there's dullness, and I'm I'm distinguishing between the two, real sleepiness and dullness, fogginess, one of the best things to do is try to get more precise and more detailed in what you're paying attention to. So if you're paying attention to the breath, Don't be general or broad or vague. Get really close. Start to notice the beginning of the in-breath and the middle of the in-breath and the end of the in-breath. Then pay attention to the beginning of the out-breath and the middle of the out-breath and then the end of the out-breath. And what we're trying to do is brighten the mind, brighten the awareness. And you can do that sometimes. And it's a really good way to work with dullness. A third piece with sleepiness and dullness, and this is after you've tried other things for a while, and if it continues, you can ask yourself a reflective question. And the question is, if I wasn't sleepy or dull, what would I be feeling now? Because often dullness or sleepiness will come as an unconscious resistance to something we don't want to experience, that we're afraid of or we're... For whatever reason, we're pushing away, but it's really being pushed away a little more unconsciously rather than in the consciousness of aversion or desire. And then to just say a little bit about doubt, which is maybe the hardest hindrance of all. It's considered the most difficult doubt because it's slippery. And it's slippery because it's often very believable. I can't really do this. This isn't for me. I'm not, I'm not good enough. Oh, it's the wrong practice. I, I really should be doing, you know, chanting and bowing practice or, you know, mindfulness doesn't really work or, 
the Buddha, what did the, oh, the Buddha, who, what did he know really? I'm, I'm going to go to the baseball game, you know, whatever it is. Doubt, you, and it'll come, it'll sound really logical and rational, it'll make sense. That's why it's slippery. Oh, it's like, are they kidding? I'm going to be with my anger? If I'm with my anger, I'll kill somebody. I, I'm not going to be with that. It's, you know, you don't want to kill somebody. It's not, don't be with your anger. Um, what doubt, what, and, and just get a little clarification, there are two kinds of doubt that's talked about in Buddhism. There's what's called great doubt and small doubt. What we're talking about here is small doubt. It's a doubt that takes you away from actually sitting on your cushion and paying attention to what's happening. It's a doubt that when you say, okay, I'm going to go meditate, and you get there and you say, oh, well, I don't really, I can't really do this, and it really isn't the right time. Or, you know, it's a doubt that takes you away from being present and, and really staying with your intention to awaken. Great doubt is considered highly valuable in Buddhism. Great doubt is valuable doubt. And great doubt, it's talked about mostly in the Zen tradition of um, that there's great, that practice takes great effort, great faith, and great doubt. And it's the doubt to keep questioning reality, to keep questioning who we are and what's happening in order to really penetrate to the deepest level of what is the truth, what is the Dharma. And it's the doubt that asks the, the biggest questions. Who am I? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be awake? These are the, the realm of great doubt. And so the hindrances, so-called, really, it's like going to the gym. You know, you don't have to like going to the gym, but if you go, you'll develop a certain capacity. And what's interesting is, you might, you know, you might not get buff like Arnold Schwarzenegger or somebody, but if you go to the gym, a certain tone comes right to your muscles and then you might use that you might not even notice when you're using that muscle but all of a sudden it's available to you all of a sudden you have to pick up something that's heavy and you can do it and that's part of the benefit of working with the hindrances because they will not only come on the meditation cushion they'll come in all everywhere in our life and all of a sudden we'll find that we have a new capacity a new power to work with our life as it is. Not in some idealized way, but right there with our feet, right on the ground, right in the middle of what Cousin Zakis and um, Zorba the Greek called the, the full catastrophe, human life. And this is echoed in the Buddha. This is a teaching from the Buddha. Actually, it's from, not the Buddha, I'm trying to be truthful. Um, Vimalakirti. And Vimalakirti is a, um, a figure in uh, Buddhism who is, who is the 
um, lay or the householder embodiment of enlightenment. And he's a very cool guy. He challenges all the monks. He's like, oh, your awakening isn't for real. You have to come to, with me to the marketplace and to the bar and to the brothel. And to the. He's like, let's see how enlightened you are there. Let's see how you are when you work in a corporation. That's, that's what female Akirti would say now. But, and so the teaching is about, they're using the images of the lotus. And he says, flowers like the blue lotus and the red lotus and the white lotus and the water lily and the moon lily do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness. But they do grow, and these are images of awakening in the text. So the image of the lotus, the blue lotus, and the red lotus, the white lotus, the water lily, the moon lily, they do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but they do grow in the swamps and the mud banks. Just so, the Buddha qualities do not grow in living beings certainly destined for the uncreated, but they do grow in those living beings who are like the swamps and mud banks of passions. Do you know who those living beings are? Good. Okay, just so we're clear. Likewise, the seeds do not grow in the sky, but do grow in the earth. So the Buddha qualities do not grow in those determined for the absolute, but they do grow in those who conceive the spirit of enlightenment. After having produced a mountain, uh, uh, um, let's see, a Sumero-like mountain of egoistic views. That's great. Sumero is a, a mythical mountain, big mountain. And so this is where the Buddha qualities grow in us with our passions, with our wants, with our aversions, with our restlessness, with our sleepiness and sluggishness and dullness, with our doubt. Please cultivate, cultivate those Buddha qualities that are only found right where you sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.